0: Welcome to the David Gogo Soul Bender podcast. A journey through the blues as seen through the hazy recollections of a life on the road.
1: I say, here comes episode 49 of the David GoGo Bender podcast. Thanks a lot for your continuing support at ppal.me slash guitar. Thanks to you, we were able to pay for 916 volts last month. Which is good because this equipment doesn't run on batteries. Send your questions to soulbenderpodcast at gmail.com and we'll get on them. On this outing, David is hanging out with one of his thousands and thousands of late-night pals. Hey everybody, David Gogo here, and um, I'm sitting with my friend Paul
0: Hoven, and we, we've had many late-night chats that I wish I could have recorded, but didn't have the facility to do so, so we're going to do it here uh, kind of midday. Um, how you doing, sir? Hey, I'm feeling great. So for an old fart. <laughs> when I first I think I first met you through the Loose for Christmas, I
2: think. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, was Commodore our annual Commodore of Blues for Christmas. We did 35 of those. Wow. 35 years. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, the Commodore was accommodating. Yeah. And uh, my ho- my home base. So um uh so it was it was something that started with Drew. And Delana, Delana Gilbowen. And she carried it on when I left the business. So it was a great annual Christmas party for musicians, is what it turned out to be, is our our Christmas party. Well, and it was great because it was to raise
0: funds for the food bank. For the is food that correct? Bank, yeah. yeah. But it gave, yeah, it gives, give, gives a chance for all the musicians to get together and the, and the industry people to get together and just have a great time.
2: Yeah.
0: And it was... In a great room. Oh, the best room. Yeah. You know, like the, the, the people don't know uh, in Vancouver, Canada... We have the Commodore Ballroom, better known as the Fabulous Commodore Ballroom, and uh, you mentioned Drew Burns. So I'm I'm kind of jumping ahead in in your career here, but Drew Burns was a kind of a, a special dude, wasn't he?
2: He certainly was. He was kind of he looked like um, kind of looked like Johnny Carson, and and was Mr. Smooth. Um, you know, he's he did he um, he was a bachelor for most of his life. The the latter part of his life, he just he liked being one of the, one of the club guys, one of the rounders, sort of. But he was such a gentleman, and uh, and he really kind of ran that room for twenty, thirty years. Yeah, I was going to say he
0: looks like a. A, a character actor from hawaii five o or something right <laughs> yeah yeah i i didn 't just... know him really well, but you know um at the time I did know him, he was so supportive i was I was a young dude, and I was briefly living in Vancouver, and I could just show up during the day and go to the Commodore, and he had that weird little office underneath the stairs, you know it was all cluttered and everything and but he was so supportive of me and 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 up and coming people he was just a, a really cool dude.
2: Yeah, he um, he helped launch a few careers. I I had left uh, I had left the business by then, but uh, Colin James yeah um, got a good lift off from uh, from Drew, um, and my friends uh, John uh, Spirit of the West, you know, uh, they launched their career from that room. Wow, yeah, yeah it's kind of cool that the room got to do that for local musicians. Well, it was you know like when I when I
0: grew up in Nanaimo, like. I'd always hear about the Commodore, and the first time I—I I think I snuck in when I was about seventeen to go see Johnny Winter. But when I—I I remember first, play, you know, being on that stage, it's magic. Yeah, there's there's nothing like it.
2: You weren't the first to sneak in as a young musician. <laughs> I, I think Brian Adams kind of set the uh, set the bar for that. I think he was fifteen or so. Is that right? <laughs> but he was—he was just so persistent and obnoxious, he couldn't say no. I had to. Um, at one point make him check his guitar and make him park it in Drew's office because if I let him in, he ended up on stage playing with whoever was playing. He'd talk his way on stage. So a real go-getter. So I I had to take his guitar away from him in order for him to come in. That's
0: Uh, great, that's great.
2: So yeah, so I'll just
0: backpedal a little bit. I mean, so I know you through the music industry. You've had grown-up jobs as well. But what attracted you to the music
2: business? Were you ever a musician? I, um, you know, I took piano lessons. I played guitar. uh, um, I never considered myself musicians because I found myself hanging out with real musicians. And (laughs) I realized, damn, I'm going to have to work really hard to get that good. And I was just better at the business side. Um, Right. I connected with musicians. I understood their point of view, their personalities, the, the you know where their inspiration came from. I just had a we had this kinship, and um, uh, and I was just better at production. I liked being behind the scenes, putting a gig together, um, creating a show, running a show, and then it's over and move on to the next one. And it, it, so I don't know. It didn't come from my family. I'll tell you. I mean. My mom and dad were fans of the ink spots, and right. Vera Lynn, my dad being a Navy, born in Victoria, Naval Base. He was a 25-year Navy veteran. And um, um, Johnny Horton, right. Marty Robbins. North to Alaska. North to Alaska, yeah. And El Paso. Battle of New Orleans. Marty Robbins, El Paso. Yeah, and Marty Robbins, El Paso, yeah. He, he had that country thing. And Nat King Cole. I love Nat King oh, Cole. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And so that was the music around me. So I really... It was when I was in the monastery. I was in the monastery for three years. Um, we started... A friend of mine was an engineer geek. And we started a ham radio club. And, of course... Nerd. In the, in, yeah. <laughs> on, on the surface, that's what it was. But after hours <laughs> in the dead of night, we'd s- sneak down to our little ham radio um, uh, room and we could hear Wolfman Jack and oh, we, could, wow. we could get broadcasts from <coughs> Sam-
0: Because back then there was no restrictions on, on what their wattage was at the radio stations No, right? no. And, and especially these, Ham radio. You could you
2: could get that. We could get these wow. we could get these stations from uh from LA and and San Francisco and Seattle. And so you know, this was the era of I don't know, like Tommy Rowe and I mean it was yeah. you know, it was that um Beach Boys era, let's call it, right. and uh, and so that's really where I became kind of fond of of pop music, popular music, and uh, um, and when I left the monastery, first year at UBC, I lived in Kitsilano, and the uh, Village Bistro was right up there on Fourth oh. Avenue in Arbutus, and and uh, mothers, uh, and so. The first gig I ever did was I I met the Poppy family at the Village Bistro and I decided, oh I'm going to do a YCO Young Christian Organization <laughs> dance at my uh, local church. So we got the gymnasium from the the school at Holy Trinity here, and I um I had uh, Terry and Susan and Craig, the Poppy family come and and do a do a dance and I liked it. I liked producing. Wow! A show. So, what year would that be? Oh, uh, that was '69. Wow. Yeah, I had. Uh, yeah, I had spent two years at UBC, '67, '68, and then uh, uh, and then '69. I started. I was booking acts, booking some friends of mine into uh, uh, college and university gigs. So that just that that
0: that's what rung your bell, and which is yeah. great because as musicians, we need people like you because we're
2: well, exactly <laughs> exactly what I thought. You know, you guys need help. Yeah. <laughs> Serious help. That's, that's, uh, that's what I figured out. Well, you know, someone's got to organize this stuff. Yeah. And um, I was pretty good at multitasking. If you're going to be a producer, you you kind of have to, you know, have plan A, plan B, plan C, and yeah. plan for everything and hope nothing, you know, goes wrong. But there's always, a, you know... Uh, so you need a team. And that was the other other good piece of my upbringing. For somehow, um, because of my father's military mm-hmm. background, building a team around you is, like, super important. Okay. And he always, I noticed he always had his buddies uh, hanging out doing electrical work. He was an electrician. So he'd always have a carpenter and a plumber, and he'd, <laughs> he'd have the other trades around him. Okay. Uh, well, that's a good idea. So... I built a team. Um, Started with a Vancouver Musicians Co-op. I got a grant from uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau uh, Ah. to um, start a a musician's resource service in Vancouver. This was in uh, 1971. I wrote the grant. So we got the one-year grant, um, and then I extended it. got a five-year extension. There were LIP grants, they were called. And then... and if you pass muster and provided the services that you uh, proposed originally, then you get a five year got a five year extension. So I got a six years out of the co op, and that's how we produced Easter beans. Um, and the main function of the Vancouver Musicians Co op these were musicians that didn't work. musicians in those days were forced to go play the clubs, and they had to play cover tunes only. Okay, and. Um, and that cabaret circuit was kind of run by Bruce Allen and Sam Feldman, and uh, and there was just skullduggery with kickbacks to from to the club owner and right. kickbacks to the agent and, and Bruce, and it was it was nasty um, for the musicians. Not only were they told what they had to play, but so there were a lot of original musicians in that era, the late 60s, early 70s. That was the beginning of kind of the acid rock era, which kind of started here in Vancouver, really. I mean, Mm -hmm. people think of psychedelia as San Francisco, but we had bands like Mother Tucker's Yellow Duck and uh, um, Mock Duck. Funny they both had duck in the names. That was (laughs) Joe's Band and Orvaldorf and Painted Ship and The Old Seeds of Time, United Empire Loyalists. And these were all psychedelic acid bands, right? Um, Yeah. And at that era... I mean, it was a real departure from the R&B soul um, history that Vancouver musicians were locked into.
0: Well, yeah, because because there, there, was, there was there was like a, almost a Motown thing here. I don't know. Were yeah. you ever? Did you ever know Tommy Chong or his brother when yeah, they did their thing? I did. Yeah. So they they ran a couple clubs, right?
2: Yeah, down the, down by there's one down at the Marco Polo. Remember Was it
0: called the Elegant Parlor? Elegant Parlor was there. <laughs> what was a great right? name yeah. for a venue. Yeah. The Elegant Parlor. That was Parlor. a great place. That was
2: a, that, that was a pretty good room. Um, there was also I don't know if I can remember his name now. Um... Uh, one of their one of their buddies and a friend of Gary Taylor's, um, if I remember his name. He he would bring Wes, Wes something, and he would bring in um, uh, Buddy Knox and right. um, um, Roy Orbison and, and so uh, the Everly Brothers. And yeah. So there was that that country um, okay. side as well that was kind of in those. They had their own club. Um, and the Elegant Parlor, and I think it was, was the Stardust or something like that. And uh, it was funny that there was little, little pockets of, let's try some of this music. Let's yeah. Let's try some of that music.
0: Well, you know, it's, it's, it's way before my time, but from what I understand, um, you know, Gary Taylor and all these guys, I mean, yeah. they were like Motown people, you know. And, yeah. And, and there was a guy that I went to high school with, Ian Baird, his, his father was a guy named Tom Baird.
2: Oh, I know Tom, yeah. do you, do you, do you know, Did you know him? Yeah. Because
0: he ended up going to Motown, man. He, he, he was producing Stevie yeah. fucking Wonder and yeah. stuff, you know. And then he, unfortunately, was a sailing accent, Well, and
2: Robbie King was Robbie playing. Robbie King. Was playing. Then he played on... He got to play on a lot of the, the Motown stuff, and, and uh, that's another
0: story. Robbie King, that, yeah, because I, I didn't know him that well, but he was... The motherfucker amongst motherfuckers when it came to the Hammond organ. Because, oh. I mean, I remember going down to the Yale one time and there was he- some kind of a jam and there was excellent players. Uh, you know, it was... It was um, Who who are our, our guys here in Vancouver with the... Well,
2: uh, on the blues side, of of course, Tom Lavin, uh, successful blues career. But are you thinking about... The- no, I'm just thinking
0: organ, players. organ so, players. So
2: Kalange... Oh, Mike Kalange, of course. Um, Bill Sample plays organ. Um, I'm trying to think of the other and guy. Daryl Havers... Yeah, but there was another guy too. Daryl was really well known. Yeah.
0: But there was a couple of them. Like Kalange came up, and there was another guy. I, I, is fading from my memory. Basil. But, 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 but then Robbie Robbie uh, King Basil came played,
2: up. Basil uh, played Hammond for Stallion Thumb Rock, uh Basil Watson. Um, yeah, there. Tried, but the but, but, Hammond was but, such a popular but instrument. But he,
0: these three three guys. Like so, Kalange and and another guy, and all of a sudden Robbie King came up. So it's the same instrument. It's, like literally, the same instrument, and all of a sudden it sounded completely different to me and He blew my fucking mind, man, like like, like yeah. how brilliant he was, just the way he could do those draw bars and do his whole like crazy, but so there is a real like in vancouver there 's a real motown connection there was indeed because even tommy Chong that yeah. was yeah it was on Motown at one point,
2: yeah, and um it even got broader um. Uh, Kenny Boychuk, that's what i Kenny oh Kenny played yeah Kenny Um, he ended up with Doucette for quite a while Yeah, you know he played, uh, Ham, played Hammond for Doucette yeah Kenny yeah uh, rest in peace Robbie and Kenny yeah you know both gone we still have Daryl Havers with us and, uh, and of course Mike is uh, playing he was playing with uh, uh, with Steve in recent years and he still plays with Powder Blues yeah yeah so when I was doing my it's their forty fifth anniversary, you know, holy shit! For Powder Blues, nineteen seventy eight. Yeah. They they launched the band. They played well. You know what? A little a little s- s- sidestep here. You know, Powder Blues,
0: and we were talking earlier about the Downchild Blues Band. When I was a kid, you know, and driving to school, you know, my mom would drive me to school on AM radio. They actually had blues on the radio. They did, and it was Powder Blues and Downchild. Yeah, they had hits. Yeah. You know, like like the Downchild, Gotta keep my eighty eight straight. You know, that was a big hit. And And powder blues, you know, um he were that guitar ring and Yeah making you know, like there was a bunch of
2: them. Thirsty Years. Yeah. And what was the first doing it right? Yeah. Doing it right in the wrong side of the That was a big hit, man. It was a it was a huge down um you know, Downchild was kind of seen as sort of the premier Canadian blues band, but powder blues sold a lot more records. I would think so yeah. You know, in the millions. Yeah, well, Tom's not a dummy, right? No, <laughs> no he's he's not actually. <laughs> Talking to Tom earlier this morning.
0: <laughs> so I just want to go back during my research. So you started promoting shows besides your Christian school <laughs> shows, yeah. But professionally, uh, but around seventy one, um, I noticed the Pender Ballroom. What was the Pender Ballroom?
2: Yeah, the Pender was this old um, this old ballroom on um, on Pender three three seven. West Pender, beside uh, between Papa's Brothers Furs hmm. and um, and this oh, great old bookstore that was where a collector's books. So it was uh, kind of right there at um, at uh, Victory Park. Uh, what's that, Hamilton? Between Hamilton and Homer. Yeah, I know what that is. And uh, uh, it was an upstairs room um, run by this Polish guy, Ed Polanin. Uh, and it had it was sort of a union hall had this fabulous eighty foot mural of industrial Vancouver uh, industrial Vancouver um, waterfront scenes and logging and dozer boats and moving moving logs around and um, shipping and uh, it's now at the Maritime Museum um, down in uh, East East Vancouver they dismantled it and moved it there. Uh so yeah um Pender Ballroom famous is it 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 held about 700 people wow. and um there's probably about 8000 people that say they saw Iggy Pop yeah there, yeah that, yeah, one, yeah of right, those, right, one, one of those Woodstock one. kind of things yeah yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> Iggy <Icky> Pop <laughs> at the Pender um and uh yeah I started doing shows there because I with the Musician's Co-op, one of the things we did is we bought a bunch of PA gear. And I put together stage crews so that bands, bands with original music, could go out and play in community halls. And I'd, we'd send out a crew. We'd send out a PA, a sound crew. So they would have f- free production, basically. Mm. We'd take a small percentage of the door and the rest of the money went Went to the band. They played the Fraser Community Center, the Russian Community Center, and you know, just go to these rooms around around the city on the weekends, um, and would do two or three uh, two or three local bands on a on a gig. They weren't doing cover tunes or anything. They were doing original music, and a lot of the blues bands came out of out of that. Danny Tripper was oh yeah was was one of them, for example. Hmm. And, um, yeah, and, and that was just our thing. Uh, for the Musicians Co-op, we had the, the resources, the, the resource center, which um, hooked up bands with rehearsal space and hooked up bands with each other, with members looking for new members. And that was the uh, kind of the, the core pitch uh, was that and providing production services. <clears throat> and then we got a five-year renewal. Um, and... Uh, you know, our biggest events, besides those weekends, uh, dances, um, were the Easter Beans, and they were classic. I did eight of the 10 Easter Beans wow. I, pro- I produced, and, uh, and it just got bigger and bigger until finally the 10th year I, well, I got fed up on the ninth year. I We used Brockton Oval, which was a pristine, beautiful green space that they used to play rugby on. And I um I, we did this show, at. Kelly J and Crowbar, oh and, yeah, and uh, oh, it, it, we had uh, kind of more of a rock and roll show, and there ten thousand people packed on onto this this uh, rugby pitch. At the end of the night, m- my crew and I are out picking up cigarette butts and mm-hmm. beer bottles and bottle caps, and we're thinking, and and, and the audience was different. It it wasn't peace, love, and let's join together and hug each other, it was, well, what are you going to do for me next? Right. Kind of attitude, right? Things have changed. And I thought, oh, okay, there's a sea change here. and And it got a a bit rowdy. Um, You know, so the last year, we put together a show at Ambleside on Easter Saturday uh, for the Easter A in, and then... The B in was Stanley Park on Easter Sunday, and then the C in was the rock and roll at the Central Park on Easter Monday. So, I split the audiences up, <laughs> and that was much more manageable. But just a killer to produce three different venues, three different parks, right? One day after after another, and so. But that was a good way to go out after ten years. I kind of I was sort of happy about that.
0: And and, and I mentioned earlier that you. You, you know, you've had grown grown up jobs, as I'll call them, you know, not just music production. So you were involved in advertising.
2: I did um, after I left the Commodore, um, after Commodore in eighty eighty two, a friend of mine, Michael Morgan, another radio guy. During the Commodore era, I met besides a lot of musicians, a lot of DJs who all wanted to come to the Commodore,
1: <laughs> right? And
2: I had free tickets, so I was one of their best pals, yeah. and. uh and so Michael and I became buddies um, because LG went on strike and he got elected uh, the uh, head of a QP local oh. that, that that took the DJs in and said, oh, we'll fight this battle for you. And uh, so I did benefits for them. We, we did uh, one benefit at uh, Rohan's. We did another one uh, at the Commodore, of course. And I, I was doing... Um, Super tramp show at the, at the Queenie, and we um, uh, and the band said, you know, we won't we won't play unless uh, unless the union lets us cross the picket line. So we negotiated a a way to do that, and so the show went on. And so I kind of got involved in labor and started a left wing ad agency, Michael Morgan uh, Communications, Michael Morgan Associates. And we did syndicated radio. Syndicated radio shows and, and some television shows and um, labor advertising and mo- social marketing and uh, uh, union kind of advocacy, advertising.
0: So your radio shows, I, I was looking, you, you had various hosts, people like David Foster, Terry David Mulligan... Bruce Allen, David Suzuki, was it?
2: Yeah, Suzuki show we did for 14 years. Wow. Um, syndicated across Canada on independent radio stations. And, um, well, not independent, but you know, Chum. Okay. And uh, uh, Moffat, you know, all the, the major stations um, with David. And then a show called In Session was a behind-the-scenes... Oh, was that the one from Hamilton, Ontario? No, that was one we did did here with uh, Mulligan. Oh, okay. So um, we had David Foster and uh, TDM and uh, Bruce Allen, because they had access... um, uh, Mulligan as an interviewer, and then Foster and Bruce as behind-the-scenes in terms of who was recording and what were they recording and oh, okay. what projects were, were up and coming. So it was kind of a sneak behind the curtain. Oh, nice. Before product got released. So, yeah, we were able to get access to, it, it was interesting. because it lasted six years. Labatt sponsored it. That was a, a good one. We also did one with a sports show with, um, dirty 30, Jim Young, who was a wide receiver for the BC lions, um, Jim was a really nice guy, but not really a broadcaster, so eventually I changed it over to getting Stringers and Michael Morgan would, um, would kind of announce or tell the story as we pieced together the interviews from Stringers, which was the same format we used for Suzuki. We'd go to these science conferences and take, you know, Suzuki would tell us who he, who he wanted to talk about and who to visit and what kind of questions to, to ask and bring it back and put, right. put together a radio show, that was sponsored by the Royal Bank for fourteen years. Nice, that was a good one. That was that was an interesting career, but that that all happened because uh, um, because my uh, my wife, my future wife, at the time had become a rock and roll widow, so we'd lived together for seven years, and here I am. She's working at a hotel that. Uh, our family owns and I'm at the Commodore every night or in Victoria or Courtney or whatever with whatever act is coming through the Commodore and so we had this this relationship seven years where I'm married to the Commodore and she's at the hotel and we got pregnant and she said well we are going to have a family and you can be married to me, or you can stay married to the Commodore. Choose one or the other. This was nineteen eighty one, so by nineteen eighty two, I, I, uh, I uh, had a meeting with Drew and Grayson and Robbie, the the owners, and I said, "Look, guys, um, you know," uh, they called me into this meeting, and and they said, "Paul, we've got some great news. We're going to buy. Um, we're going to take over Oil Can Harry's. We're going to buy it from." Frank Cook had it at the time. And uh, I'm want you to run it. I said, I loved All Can Harry's.
0: So and th- that was a, sorry to interrupt, but that, that, that was a club in Gastown? Was that No, All
2: was on Thurlow, Alberni. Oh, okay. It was on okay. Thurlow and Alberni. Okay. And it's below Robson Street okay. there, yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, it became a keg and cleaver later. <laughs> a a keg. Uh, I think it might even still be a keg. It was a great room. Um yeah. You know, it had three different rooms that had kind of this cigar jazz lounge. Right. You know, yeah, cigar room on the top. So that would have been a good floor. opportunity for you. It it was a room I really loved. It had this Vegas style showroom. mm mm-hmm. And it was its major main room and lots of great acts played there. You know, Mitch Ryder. And I it was it was a fun fun room, Tina. Yeah, I can Tina Turner. I got a story about Ike and Tina Turner. I got a call in the middle of the night. One night I'm at home in bed, and um, I've been at the Commodore five, six, seven years. I can't remember how long. Anyway, I get a call from Drew. It's three in the morning. We didn't have a show that night, and I I asked to pick up the phone. I always had the phone beside my bed, and Drew says, Paul, I want you to go down uh, and get Ike out of jail. I said, (laughs) Ike? Drew, who? Ike, Ike Turner. Why would we do that? it's not our show. He said, "No, but you know, as club guys have to stick together and uh we each have our job to do and it is true. And Drew's job was to kind of look after the police department and relationships on at ground level in the city that involved musicians and police and the clubs and so forth. And you know that included letting them come in and do a regular tour of each club. You know, uh, every wow. night, and uh, and and I got to know the night court judge really well, and because <laughs> and, uh, I'd have to go down and bail out our musicians from the Commodore. <laughs> the big bands were, the, were some of the worst. Right? Really, first of all, they they had twelve guys, right. so there's always going to be one or two idiots in the, in the in the group who are out raising hell after the after after hours, <laughs> and I'd have to go get them. Um, get them out of jail and yeah, I had to do it on my own recognizance and uh, the judge would see me hello Mr. Hoven. and who do we have in town this week <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so uh, anyway um, I went down and I got Ike out of jail but he, you know he was a bit of a, a prick all the way driving back through Gastown on the way back to the Hyatt from the, the night court was down at 312 Main Street and I I kept trying to, every time I came to a red light, he tried to jump out of the car. He wanted to just get out and go go race hell again. And I, fuck, it was a, you know, I started running lights so it wouldn't slow down. So, you know. Uh,
0: He's a piece of fucking work. Eh? He,
2: he was. I took him back and Tina a- answered the door and and I just burst right past her, pushed her aside and, and she said, so where'd you find, where'd you find him? I said, in jail? She said, no, yeah. <laughs> so, I guess you're from the club. I say, no, I'm actually I'm from the Commodore. She said, oh, I've heard about that place. You're not from Wilcans? No. Well, how come you ended up... how do you end up having to look after this asshole? <laughs> <laughs> it was a few months before they broke up. Wow. I didn't realize at the time it was on the, on the rocks, but... Wow. Uh, I said, oh, no, my name's Paul from the, from the Commodore at the Hat, and uh, she said, well, that's pretty uh, neighborly of you. I said, yeah, well, you know, the clubs in the city kind of have to band together. Everyone's got their their uh, area of interest, so to speak. And uh, anyway, um, yeah, I promised the judge he wouldn't get into into any more trouble and I see you got another night in town so I'm a little nervous about it and she said no don't worry I get it we'll keep I'll keep a close marine on him Just okay and uh, have you got a card? I said well yeah here here's my card and then about a year and a half later I get a call from her manager saying she wants to come and play the Commodore because they'd broken up right and uh so I got to bring Tina Turner up to the Commodore, which was kind of a kind of a treat. Yeah. My last shows at the Commodore, Easter two were um, Taj Mahal, Tina Turner, and BB King. I, well, BB King I did at the Orpheum, while I had Taj across the street at the Commodore. We were oh, the Orpheum okay. and the Commodore have the back alley that we share between us. Right. Um, And so I would bounce back and forth between the two rooms. And then the the Thursday, Friday, um, uh, we had Tina. Uh, So I thought, it's not going to get any better than this. These are my last shows. Right, Taj, one of my favorites. Just solid. We had a great relationship. This great picture of Taj holding my uh, newborn snow princess... As white as white can be, <laughs> and uh, and Taj was as coal black as you can find. <laughs> here's this little baby in one hand. He's holding. He's, this is a big man in one yeah. hand. He's got this little little white snow princess sitting here at this table that we're sitting at right wow. now. And uh, it's a classic photo with with Taj. I loved taking him. He loved going to the uh, uh Indian restaurants, the uh, Native Indigenous. Uh, oh, really? Restaurants. There yep. was one. Uh, I think it was called the Tillicum, was it? Or is that the one on grouse? Uh, no, it was right across from the Sands Hotel, which um, is a hotel that uh, my wife's father owned, on Davy Street. It was a uh, Muckamuck, it was called. Muckamuck. Muck-a-muck. <laughs> and it was a native restaurant he loved. <clears throat> Fiddleheads. Oh, oh, and bannock bread and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he so he wanted to stay at the Sands because we looked, took care of him, so he could go to that restaurant every night. Wow. Yeah, uh, Taj was a bit of an epicurean. He liked different different countries' foods, and, but he, when he came to Vancouver, he wanted to try a, eat go eat native restaurants. Kind of kind of a cool guy. So um, I had to, uh, I ended up choosing, uh, marrying uh, Linda Presti and um, having a couple of kids and raising a family and that was 35 years in uh, advertising and radio syndication, radio television syndication and not producing um, live music which kind of broke my heart in some ways because I love doing it I'm happy doing it. I'm back doing it again she passed away. 15 odd years ago, 16 years now and um, so uh, it just broke me up and I went out to go see some of my old music friends, Foster, Jim Foster from Foster Child and I just uh, started to go back out and the music healed me, put me back together again. Um, It took all that emotion that I had never really paid any attention to until she died and found out that, wow okay i'm I'm on rocky ground here. <laughs> right. It took half your heart and threw it away and you say, Wow, that hurts wow and so stay instead of sitting around moping at home and mm-hmm. and uh feeling sorry for myself i I went out to see some of my old musician friends. I felt great, so I went out again the next night and the next night and the next night. <laughs> <laughs> And within a couple of weeks, I was kind of being, I was back, able to go to work again and able to focus on the job and my brain was back in place. I have a brain that, I play chess and my, it's like a, you look at all the options and then choose the direction you're going and that's how my, how my brain functions. And it didn't function at all when she passed away. I had to live through that yeah. sadness
0: and grief. And you were together how long
2: uh, we were married for thirty uh thirty three years wow. yeah yeah and and kids and everything Yeah, so kids. it was all a family family time and I couldn't have done that with I look at my friends that were in the club business or even promoters and all of their families and marriages didn't last, yeah, very few of them do it's difficult, yeah
0: you know. absolutely
2: and uh but well, the cool thing is with musicians, if you don't see them for a decade or four decades, it doesn't matter if you if you run into them and just say, "Last time I saw you, we were we were doing this and this and this together." Say, so, "Oh yeah, I remember that." What oh, what's you been doing since? And where's so-and-so? And is he still alive? Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, that's like last night at the Walter Trout Show.
0: I'm opening for Walter, and he goes, man, I haven't seen you for probably 35 years. And he remembered, <laughs> it was, I was playing with John. He said, I was playing with John Mayo at the town pump. And I was like, wow. wow. <laughs> <You remember that? laughs> yeah, yeah, And
2: the next thing you know, we're jamming and hanging out. Right? Exactly. That was a great jam. Man, you guys <laughs> shredded, <laughs> shredded the place. I, saw, I, I told the sound man later, how the hell did you keep it in the room? It was
0: like well, I just kept having to go back and crank up my
2: amp. Yeah, <laughs> stay, stay, uh, stay, stay with Walter. Yeah. Oh, he's a he's a monster.
0: Oh, he he really is. Like he's just just yeah. more, you know one of the best I've ever heard.
2: He's, he's a monster. Something. Yeah, yeah.
0: Because he can play like traditional blues and stuff, but there was some shit he was pulling off that reminds me of this guitarist from Texas named Eric Johnson, who plays like this very unique, but Walter was doing that. Anyways, we're not talking about Walter. We're no. talking about you. But so, he
2: reminded me there's points in the night where I, I almost expected him... It wasn't the kind of stage that was easy to walk off of, but I almost expected him to do a buddy guy or... Yeah, you or Benny, it, Albert Benny Collins. Albert Collins kind of yeah. walk out in the middle of the audience and just wail, you know. I've seen you do that. I do that. I've seen you do, I that. do, that. <laughs> I do that. I saw you do that one night. It was... Uh, I think it was one of our our blues for Christmas shows, but it was one of, I yeah. think it was up at Fairview. Um, that, oh yeah. that yeah. year. And uh, so Steve Kozak had had done his set, and you were you were up doing your set. You were playing, uh, doing a BB B. King number. The thrill is gone probably. And uh, and you walk off the stage, and you walk past you walk past uh, Steve, and you hand him your guitar, and he 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 just picks up the note where you left it, go over the bar, you get yourself a shot of whiskey <laughs> and swing back through, down the whiskey, grab your guitar and start using the, the the whiskey glass as a slide. And now now you're playing the slide blues and go yeah. up and finish the song on stage. It's that kind of, let's play the room. Yeah. We have the whole room here. <laughs> so let's let's do it. Room. Let's do it. Yeah. Feels
3: like I'm wearing 300-pound shoes, baby. Can't lift my feet up off the ground Feels like I'm wearing 300-pound shoes, baby Can't lift my feet up off the ground You know I felt this way Ever since you put me down suit now baby I find it so hard to move around like I'm wearing three piece lit suit now baby I find it so hard to move around no I know I've felt this way ever since you put me I just want to lay in bed all day Ain't no reason to get up anyway I've got nothing left to say Ever since you put me down
1: David Gogo's Vibe album it's 300 pound shoes on the Soul Bender podcast one of my favorite go-go tunes despite the blatant disregard for the rules and regulations regarding metric in this country jeez here's more chin wagging with David and Paul um so w- another thing i wanted to touch on is
0: you know the time we've spent together it seems to me that you're an environmentalist and you were involved with the very early activities, I guess, of like Greenpeace and that kind of thing. So yeah, the
2: er, early, uh, the early get started, get going uh, meetings we held at the uh, at the Cecil Hotel, which was a strip bar. But uh, I've never been there. It was cheap. It, it was uh, the cheap beer, and we, we could afford we could afford the beer, and it was hard to have a meeting without without having a glass of beer in front of you. Um, yeah, Bob. Bob Hunter and Rex Weiler, Rod Marining, um, the early uh, board of directors, Patrick Moore. Uh, we had our early meetings at the Cecil, and I, I got involved because, um, well, uh, because I had friends that were musicians and they needed to raise money, so I was kind of the link between fundraising for Greenpeace and the first show. First show I did. Was um, there was this group called End the Arms Race, uh, the Quakers, Irving and Dorothy Stowe, and oh. we would gather uh, at Kitts Beach, and ten started out with a couple thousand every year. We'd march across, and uh, the last uh, the last couple of years, of seventy seventy one, um, we had like ten thousand people walking across the Broad Street Bridge, over to Sunset Park on on English Bay. Uh, and so with had this big audience, big crowd, and I would, they would have speakers and I'd send some musicians down to play. And uh, anyway, they decided that we um, had to do something about the U.S. nuclear testing in Amtitka, up in Alaska, in the Aleutian panhandle there. They were going to, um, they were going to test some 30-ton nuke um, on the San Andreas Fault, <laughs> right? Wow. This made a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, let's yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's test a nuke on an earthquake zone. Yeah, exactly. we Have a fault. Um, <laughs> God so, damn. So they wanted to um, to go protest that. that. Uh, Bob Hunter kind of led the charge, and Irving Stowe was the Quaker was was uh, had the organization end the arms race, um, and uh, we decided to do this. We had to raise money, so um, I called down. I a friend of mine, Bob Young, was Neil Young's brother. And he said, you know, maybe you should call Elliot Roberts. He's, he was uh, Neil's manager. Yeah. And um, he said, Elliot might be interested in helping out. Maybe Neil will come and play. And so, I, so he hooked me up with Elliot. And uh, before Elliot made any commitment at all, he said, well, let me come up and meet you guys, and find out what this is all about. So he flew up, and uh, he met with um, our... Uh, our, our two boards, the, the Quakers, and, uh, and, well, we didn't even have a name yet, it wasn't Greenpeace yet. It was during those meetings that we came up with the name of Peacenics, and, you know, from, yeah. from the Endy Arms Race, and, and Eco-Warriors, um, eco Green, and Green uh, Ecologists. So, yeah, it became the Greenpeace um, organization. And we did the first benefit in October of uh, 1970, October 16th, 1970, with Joni um, Mitchell, James Taylor, Phil Oakes, and uh, Chilliwack. Wow. And that was a Coliseum show. And uh, remember, this was 1970. Yeah. Ticket prices were like two bucks or three bucks. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not like it would raise a lot of money. But we raised $40,000, which was enough to charter the Phyllis Cormac. With Captain John Cormack, it was a an old deep sea fishing vessel. It was only about forty five, fifty feet long. Yeah. It wasn't that big, and um, and enough to buy provisions. and Off the boys sailed up up to Alaska. They never quite made it to Alaska. The U.S. Navy set up a blockade. There's naval warships, <laughs> and here we are. I'm not on the wow. boat. Here they are on this on this this fishing vessel. And broadcasting around the world about this test, nuclear test that is threatening our Pacific coastline, and uh, the Canadian government got involved, and there was a pissing contest between Ottawa and Washington, and, and uh, but it got all kinds of headlines, and and uh, that's when Bob Hunter proved his premise that this, you know, the pen is mightier than the sword. Right. And that was Greenpeace's. Uh, kind of that was their beginning, and I, uh, I just became hooked up as their conduit to um, fundraising. That's, a, did, that's amazing. And, and we did, we did uh, another one, uh, 1974, the whaling expedition. They didn't Greenpeace didn't have enough money. Uh, Paul Horn, a Victoria musician. Yep. Um, I had worked with Paul a couple of times, and uh, and Paul Spong, um who. Uh, Professor Spong was, he was a marine biologist and studying the orcas. And uh, and Paul Horn liked to play music with the orcas. They would sing back and forth to each other. Um, Anyway, Paul Spong wanted to uh, um, do a Save the Whales campaign. Greenpeace didn't have enough enough money. Uh, So I said, okay, I'll do a fundraiser at the uh, Queenie. I started calling around looking for acts, and you know, uh, I, I called Elliot, of course, and he said, well, you know, Joe, Joe McDonald probably, he'd be really interested in that, so I, I got a hold of Country Joe, and he said, oh, yeah, I'll come up and do, I'll come up and do that, that's a good idea, you know, um, and uh, who else? Well, Paul Horn played, of course, and uh, Morty, um uh she... She did a set. Paul Spong had a video about about the orca and uh, and their family pods and how how family-oriented they were. Right. And um, I, I called Gordon Lightfoot. Um, I called a few a few Canadian. Uh, Voldy came, and he said, yeah, of course. Gordon was uh, on the road in the middle of shows on the date we had gotten from the Queenie, so he said, oh, I can't do it. And I like the idea, though. Good good on you, you know. So we do, we do the show and, uh, like I said, ticket prices were (laughs) two or three bucks and so, at the end of the night after we paid our, paid our bills and the hall rent security and so forth, uh, we ended up with like $4,900 and the Greenpeace had about, they said, if you can raise $10,000, we'll match it. Right. Because that's sort of where it has to be. We've only got so much money. So, I got about 4900 bucks, and um, we know we've fallen short. We're hoping Greenpeace will still, some, somehow, maybe I can do another benefit, and we'll raise another 4900 And Anyway, one of the ushers comes back and says, there's a phone call here for somebody named Paul. And I said, oh, it's probably me. So I took the phone call. I said, hi, it's Paul here. And um, he said, oh, hi, this is Gordon. Which Paul are you, the promoter or the scientist? <laughs> I said, huh? I'm uh, I'm the promoter, Gordon. He said, Oh, well give me the scientist. What's his name? Spong. Paul Spong. yeah, I wanna talk to I wanna talk to him. I hand the phone over to Paul. Paul says, Uh yeah, this this is Paul Spong. Uh, he says, Hi, this is Gordon Gordon Lightfoot. Um look, how'd you do? And he said, Well, we got about half the money. he says, Oh, okay. Well I'll tell you what. Tomorrow, I'm gonna, am I'm gonna send you a check for five uh, k. That'll, that'll get you to your goal, right? And uh, Paul covers the phone and says, "What's five k?" I <laughs> said, "It's five thousand dollars." Oh, yeah, Mister Lightfoot, that would be wonderful. I <laughs> <laughs> said, "Call me Gordon." Okay, Paul, it's in the mail. Good work. And wow. he, they sort of hung up. Gordon from knew what, when the show was knew it was over. Right? That, the that, the late, what was, a what a
0: killer move,
2: right? It was. It was and, awesome.
0: what, and what year would that be? Seventy four, I think it was. So it's like seven. five five thousand bucks back then, that's a lot of money. Man. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. And wow. and you know, and I gotta say, it was a pretty aggressive move for Greenpeace to switch gears from, you know, nuclear arms and peace yeah. to saving a species. Um, and there were some real strong advocates uh, on on the Greenpeace board. Paul Watson being one of the chief ones. Yeah. Patrick Moore not so much. Uh, Bob Hunter liked the idea, the whole image of saving a species is, was perfect in wow. terms of media awareness. Right, right? Right. So um, it became kind of one of Greenpeace's pet causes. And, and, uh, and I hooked up to it. I can remember when we had Habitat uh, for Humanity in 78 uh, and uh, was it 78 or 77, 77 I guess it was, uh, out at Jericho Beach and we sent off the whaling expedition and um, off they uh, off they go, we had no idea, no idea where they were going to go, they didn't know where the Russian fleet was, the, the Japanese fleet and Russian fleet were both working in the Pacific to slay and capture whales. Right. But trying to find out where they were—it's a big ocean, <laughs> right? <laughs> and didn't, we didn't have intel because by then they knew that, right. you know, Greenpeace was on the case. Anyway, off, off they sail from Jericho Habitat. The foreign Trudeau is Pierre Trudeau is there, and uh, and the world's eye, eyes are on this Rainbow Warrior leaving Jericho Beach to go um, intercede on behalf of the whales, and stopped the whaling fleets from slaying whales. They ended up going out around the corner, at Point Grey, off the uh, off the end of Point Grey, headed up Georgia Street, and the guy's saying, okay, now what do we do? <laughs> Where are we yeah. going? Because yeah. they didn't have the intel, and they finally they got some clue that... Uh, off of uh, in the South Pacific off uh, he said I mean that's that's huge geography man <laughs> it was yeah It's you know this was these little boats on a big body of water yeah how they found the fleet is funny one of the uh, one of the crew members was a musician named Mel Gregory Mel had uh, he was a folk singer and he had a, a pet iguana and of he course. got left there they'd been out for two weeks bobbing around in the ocean not knowing where the hell either fleet was, they, you know, it was uh, radio silence, couldn't get wow. any. And uh, so one night, who was the captain? Was it Metcalf? can't remember if Metcalf was uh, uh, was running that one. I think it was. Um, anyway, Mel is on duty. He's got night watch. He falls asleep in the middle of the night. The ship drifts off course and changes direction. Is almost going... You know, a complete 90 degrees to where they, where they were charted to go. And in the morning, uh, Ben comes up on uh, into the wheelhouse, wakes Mel up, and says, What the hell? What are we doing? How do we get this far off course? And uh, and he's in the middle of reaming Mel out when suddenly one of, uh, I think it was Rex, Rex Weiler, shouts out, from um, from the top deck, he says, "Hey, there's the whaling fleet."
0: No kidding! <laughs> no kidding! <laughs> Just
2: by accident, sort of by accident. Look, like the universe. Right. Musicians are really good at listening to the universe. <laughs> by the way, this is one of the secrets about yeah. about where does music come from? <laughs> yeah, it comes from the heavens. <laughs> it's guided by God, and that's why it heals. But it got them in front of the whaling fleet. And that afternoon, there they are, Rex, a classic photo of him hold, holding, um, holding on a couple of guides Eat. with his feet planted in the front of a zodiac as, as they're charging towards this rushing... Uh, That's wailing, an iconic photograph. Iconic yeah. photograph with a, with a spear, the wailing spear Jesus being going o- over their heads, and, um, and they go right up alongside... And, Wow. I mean, it was like, wow. they were... That's uh, heavy shit, because cause heavy. back then,
0: too, I mean, people were a little more rough, <laughs> shall oh, we say. Oh, hell, you don't
2: think the Russians? God. Yeah, this is open. they are harpoon you like a fucking whale. Yeah, this is open, yeah, this is open seas. Yeah. There ain't no police out there. Yeah, yeah, international <laughs> waters. Yeah. So, uh, wow. anyway, yeah, that that's an iconic shot. And that was a that was musician that led them to yeah. accidentally... <laughs> wow! On purpose. Uh, so yeah, Greenpeace and I—we go back a long ways. Yeah. You know, I—the last show I did I think was '95 when Rex wrote the Chronicles. Uh, he finished the Chronicles and I uh, put together a benefit. Bob Hunter's last stand. He died two weeks after he, after we did this. He had cancer. He was living in uh, Toronto. I brought him out, and uh, gathered the old crew, and we launched. Um, It was the um, book launch for the Greenpeace Chronicles by Rex. I remember opening a show and uh, saying, well, you can tell you're getting old and, you know, uh, we used to uh, launch boats from here. Now apparently we're good at launching books. Yeah, yeah. yeah, (laughs) Our age is showing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, uh, right. So... We did the benefit. Paul Paul um, Horn played. He was, and actually, um, and Anne Mordecai they met they, they they met at that show and ended up getting married. Paul was living in Palm <clears throat> Springs and she was up on Cortez Island and they would go half the year in Cortez and half the year in Palm Springs. Wow! Guess which half of the year goes Palm Springs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was <laughs> gonna say yeah. Uh, and Anne is still up on uh, on Cortez with a few other musicians mm-hmm. hiding up there. The islands, the Gulf Islands, we've got a lot of
0: musicians. Oh, and and, and some you'll never know that they live there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, yeah. So I was
0: going, um, you know, through your history. Uh, and, you know, you've worked with so many musicians, you know, promoting shows. But I just wanted to ask a, about a couple. I remember you told me a, a Frank Zappa story. So you, you, you promoted Zappa?
2: It was embarrassing. I wasn't the promoter. Oh, uh, my uh, mentor. This is um, this is uh, learning at your own expense. Mentoring uh, was Roger Schiffer, who owned a club called the rental Circus on Davy Street. It was a it was a psychedelic acid rock era, uh, and he would have acts uh, come up. Country Joe was one of the acts that came up, and uh, uh, the Grateful Dead came up, and, and the early uh, uh, stars uh, Jefferson Airplane uh, played there, and. Uh, you know, it was, um, yeah, it was a hippie club. uh, And, uh, I ended up working somehow because of the musician's co-op and I was doing all these productions around town and at the Pender Ballroom. The Rental Circus, I think, was the old embassy ballroom. Uh, anyway, Roger got me, wanted me to manage, stage manage and produce a show for him. Um, and it was Frank Zappa at the Agrodome. So, yeah, okay, I'll do that for you, Roger. Uh, down I go. And we start sound check. An hour goes by. Frank's not happy. Going into the second hour, Frank is really not happy. This is the agrodome. It has a mud floor. Yeah. It's round. I remember that venue. Um, and it's got and it's steel everywhere, metal. And it's just horrible sound. Um, and he can't he can't get he, he's not happy. He can't get his sound and he hauls me over and he says, What the fuck is going on here? And I got I can't I just uh, you know, I don't think we're gonna play tonight. And <laughs> I said, Look, you you're in an empty barn here. Yeah. When the audience comes in the mud warms up. There's humidity. <laughs> it, the whole sound changes. Anyway, you're kind of wasting your time trying to get a sound check at two in the afternoon, because at seven o'clock when the doors open, it's all going to be different. You'll end up having to do do it over. And he says, "Ah, this is, this is crazy." Suddenly, I said, ah, "You know, why don't we wait? Why don't? How about this? Barry Greenfield was the opening act." Yeah, what an odd conversation. Yeah, 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 no kidding. Roger, Roger, (laughs) Roger, what? (laughs) Who? Really? You sure? (laughs) Anyway, so uh, I said, look, I'm going to, I'll open the doors early so the crowd can come in early. Um, And uh, how about, you know, how about this? The band comes back. And just the band does an improv number. They do a sound check. You, you're not here. You're backstage if you want to be, or you're still at the hotel, but it's not Frank Zappa on stage as the crowd comes in. It's a bunch of musicians, some others. And I'll get Dave Zephyr, who was ran Kelly DeYoung, he owned the equipment. Right. He played the he knows the room, and he knows that when it's full, it's different. So I'll get him down. And he'll work he'll set the PA, PA up um and uh frank looks around he's not happy about this suggestion and George Duke, god bless George steps up and says, "Hey, Frank, I think that'll work'll run. I'll run sound check you can you can hang out backstage and make sure you're happy with it, but we'll come up and do one of our improv numbers you know um it'll it'll just look like we're warm- we're warming up and and uh this idea I think it might work so Frank begrudgingly uh, agrees Mm -hmm. and uh, and that's what we do I open the doors early the crowd comes in um, the mothers are on stage sort of tuning and hacking around and pretending that they're just jamming and and we get sound check Zephyr gets gets the sound right well um, and then the show goes it goes on and, and Frank does a great show uh, I find out two years later I hire George to come and play the Commodore for me. Uh, he had his he had his band at the time. I think it was George Duke. I think Billy Cobham was oh, wow. on drums. I can't remember who was on bass.
0: Probably everyone that's probably, really good. Probably
2: I think it <laughs> like was like
0: Stanley Clark yeah, or I think someone. Yeah, it was
2: Stanley. Yeah, I think. Was it? Yeah, I'm pretty oh, sure God. it was. It was a it was yeah. a honking great band. Yeah. And anyway, George says, oh. Uh, you're the hat guy. I remember you from a couple of years ago at the cow barn place. I said, yeah, you were with Zappa. You saved my ass that day. He said, look, well, you didn't know, and we didn't tell you at the time. Frank had played that room two years earlier. He knew what the fuck he was walking into. He was just giving you a ride. He sa- I said, well, the guy ruined me a new asshole. <laughs> <laughs> said, yeah, he likes doing that on occasion. <laughs> Wow. Ah, Frank Zappa story. I did I was not amused Yeah, yeah. I don't but think so. but another lesson lessons by Roger Schiffer. Yeah. <laughs>
0: well, speaking of Zappa, a a guy that he grew up with was Captain Beefheart. Yeah. And and it's funny because last night the, the show that I was doing opened for Walter Trout, uh, which was promoted by um Paul Merckx, uh apparently it was fifty years ago yesterday. It was Paul's first show, and he pr- pr- promoted Captain Beefheart. Captain
2: Beefheart at the Commodore.
0: Yeah. He did so, re- so, the
2: Commodore. So was that your show? Or no, was that was, there were a couple of promoters that, I mean, the number of acts that I would have been working every night of the week if, if, if the artists had their way. Um, but uh, there were dates, good dates, where I would have to leave town with an act. To give it a, a routing date, so we had open, some open nights, and Paul wanted to do a show. There were a couple of other promoters that we uh, that we would rent rent to, and um, it was a Captain Beefheart uh, show. Another one uh, was uh, New York Dolls. Oh, really? Jimmy Wilson. Wow. And uh, the gay community yep. brought them in, in to the Commodore. Well, I didn't want to produce it. <laughs> so wow. so, um, so we had some uh, favorite promoters that. We would let kind of bring in, and and Paul was one of one of our favorites. His company was called I Love Man Productions at that time, and uh, Captain Beefheart was a huge success. And yeah, it was one of Paul's first shows, maybe his first show. I'm not sure. He was still going to UBC, UBC studying law, mm-hmm. um, but he and I became close friends, and uh, three of us promoters, Kent Collins from had the UBC program where he'd bring acts up to the warmer world. Gymnasium and do um, do shows at out at UBC and then Paul had his uh, his production company and he liked to do Queenie and the Orpheum kind of shows Phoebe Snow um, was uh, an act he brought in several times he brought in uh, Billy Joel um, I mean he worked his way right up the Bruce Springsteen show he did at the Queenie uh, so yeah Paul became Became a rock and roll promoter and still is to this day. Yeah, yeah, crazy. Fifty years later, I'm amazed that he survived that long. And yeah, wanted to wanted to keep doing this. So, so did you do
0: a, a beef art show? No, just with you. No, no, okay. No, that okay. was
2: uh, that was Paul's act. That's okay. another thing about Paul Merck's and uh, I love man and Paul Merckx concerts. The loyalty that he developed with artist management was management and agency his strength was contract negotiations and getting along with agencies and making mm. deals work and and uh and getting them up and running uh and so that's how he survived is that he had the support of william morris for example Wow! right okay um and uh yeah and my my strength was relationship with the act with the artists themselves Different, different approach. Um, I I saw the name Bob
0: Marley on your yeah, CV. Yeah, Marley. So, you promoted it, Bob Marley.
2: I did. We did a Commodore show one year. And we wow. did
0: at uh, the Commodore, man. Bob Marley at the fucking Commodore. That yeah. one must have been the
2: tits, man. It it was. Uh, it was a tricky one, honestly. It was because yeah. it was, it's it's, um, but not as tricky as the next year when I did the Queen E. You can't dance. At the Queenie, uh, right. and nobody... You go to a Bob Marley show, I don't know what I was thinking, but yeah. he wanted a 3,000-seater. But at the Queenie, everybody wanted to get up and dance, and the okay. fire marshal, oh, man. Uh. They were threatening to shut the show down, and I had tried to and beg everybody to get back in their seats, and Bob didn't want to tell them, boss them around or anything. and I said, look... You know
0: that 's such a ridiculous fucking law if you have that many people in the fucking room,
2: yeah,
0: what does it matter if
2: they 're sitting or they 're standing or they're I'd, dancing if they would stand at their uh, stand at their seats, it was okay like i can i got the okay. I got the venue to agree to that, but standing in the aisles was blocking fire exits, and that that was a no no so so that was a shit show, but at the Commodore. What a gig. Oh, it was fantastic. It's just... I can't imagine. Bob Marley at the Commodore. That must have been one of the huge. best gigs ever. It was huge. Um, yeah, he had his family. His wife was, was on stage with him yeah. singing. And um, it was quite the entourage. I went to meet them at the border and there were 34 of them. <laughs> 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 I didn't think we had booked that many hotel rooms. Um, but I'll tell you, I, I mean, Bob... It was fantastic
0: so you just have personal
2: fantastic. interaction with them yeah yeah um Jamaican so time is a bit weird okay. I had to have personal interaction otherwise they would disappear or fade away into the night I had to go collect them with buses at the hotel to make sure they got to the, the gig on time because it's Rasta time you know <laughs> yeah Rasta <of> time <laughs> it's um, it's the, like golf island time they were notorious <laughs> just notorious so I knew that going in Here's the worst one. Last time, nineteen seventy eight, I did a series of summer concerts on the top of Gross Mountain, Paradise Bowl. It was called uh, Lighter Than Air Fair, and uh, uh, and we would uh, would ferry people up on the gondolas, for, you know, for the day, um, for uh, long weekends, three three days on on the weekend we would do shows, and one of the shows I had booked. Um, uh, the show in August. I had both Toots and the Maytals. Wow. I tried to find them. I tried to make sure, to track them down. They were at a thing called Sunfest, which in Jamaica. It's the, the festival. It's it's like like the Ozfest. and too. It it is a huge thing in in Jamaica. So they went off to uh, that, and I kept waiting to hear from. Them, waiting to hear from. Them. They were a no show. They didn't show up. A week later I get a phone call from the border. We've got these guys here, Toots and the Maytels, <laughs> who say they have they have a gig on a on, on a mountain in Vancouver and they've got the contract and your name and phone number is on it. I said, Yeah. I said, that was last week. <laughs> 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 Jamaicans, right? The guy says, Oh yeah, they're Jamaican. <laughs> I said, uh look, um, like, yeah you know, give, give me give me the the manager give me i said look guys you're l- you're late but i'll tell a you week what. late <laughs> I will tell you what we can i can you're here i'll come on in i'll come down and meet you uh and you can play the commodore on the on the weekend and we'll just do a uh, we'll do a blitz and uh we'll we'll put you in the commodore, you can play a show you'll get your money <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Here you go, Rasta, Rasta time. Rasta, Rasta, man. They were having too much fun at, at Sunfest, and they didn't want to leave to go do a show in Canada. <laughs> it's okay, man. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, Paul, thank you very much for uh, doing this interview. I really appreciate it, and uh, appreciate what you do.
2: Oh, it's fun. We have old war stories. That's the one thing about about musicians. They've always got a story that happens to them on the road and while well, the world is in play so are they
0: yeah and we could only probably talk for another eight hours i think <laughs> yeah right
2: <laughs> your battery power is gone <laughs> well thank uh, you very much yeah, you're welcome thanks david i'm glad you're doing the podcast thing it's a, it's a it must be a joy for uh, uh certain people who were there yeah no people yeah people dig it man because yeah. you know
0: yeah so, and, and it's kind of like like a a little snapshot of the backstage scene as well.
2: That helps too. Yeah, I didn't tell you that Tina Turner where, I got.
0: Well not tell it? I got
2: <laughs> Drew sent me down. Yeah, the, 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 uh, he said you know, um, uh, Tina, I mean, if if Tina wants to, um, you know, get changed. We had a shitty dress dressing room in those days at the Commodore. One, one fairly big common dressing room and and one little one. And uh, he said, um, "Why, you know, Tina, go tell Tina she's welcome to come up and, and use use my office if she, uh, you know, if she wants to get dressed for the, for the show." And I'm, I'm thinking, "Oh yeah, oh, that that might be nice." And hiking myself t- down through the audience, down the Commodore. and as I as I kind of hit the backstage stairs, I'm thinking to myself, "That fucking asshole just sent me to fetch Tina Turner to come and change and his... His, in his office, I don't think I'm going to do that. <laughs> so I knock on, on the door, and Tina, I said, uh, "It's it's Paul, Tina." Oh, okay, Paul, come on in. I walk in. the The two dancers are 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 getting changed. They're they're standing there topless, and I'm trying not not to look, and looking at at Tina, and uh, she said, "Oh, what do you want?" Oh, um, Drew just wanted to wish you a good show, and it's a five-minute call. And I left the room. And <laughs> <laughs> I went back and told her,
0: you asshole. <laughs> you wanted to see some Tina Turner shits. Yeah, He <laughs> so did.
2: That's the kind of rascal Drew was. Uh,
0: he was a great man. Yeah.
1: And uh, you are too, Paul. Thank uh, you. Uh,
2: thanks, David. That was a great show last night. Thank you. You and Walter.
1: Yep. Yeah. And that, my friend, is what we call episode 49 of the Soulbender Podcast. What the deuce will we be up to on number 50? We have no idea, but we know it'll be something. I'm Scott James. That guy over there is noted raconteur David Gogo. Send your questions to soulbenderpodcast at gmail.com, and we appreciate your kind support at paypal.me slash gogoguitar. Go with yourself. Be safe and we love you.
0: This has been the David GoGo Soul Bender podcast. To stay up to date, follow David on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Thanks for listening.
1: Until next time.